This whole COVID-19 sheltering in place experience has created a host of challenges. And one of the more significant has been loneliness. And for some, that's posed a profound risk. A couple of weeks ago, USA Today had out a moving article entitled, The Life-Saving Lesson Suicidal People Can Teach a World in Pandemic. It was an insightful story that followed the life of a central character named Jess, along with some key family and friends who have been particularly vital to her life. Jess has twice attempted suicide, and while she's doing better now, she still lives with chronic suicidal thoughts, and the coronavirus pandemic has only further challenged her. Early in the article, Jess says, basically everything that's a social risk factor for anything is crashing down on us right now. If you don't have a network for supporting yourself, I don't know how people will survive. She continues, the pandemic has revealed what many suicidal people know and others have taken for granted. Human connection is life-saving. Reflecting on those words, the writer of the article says, Jess is alive in part because her life is threaded to others. Her sister, her friends, her fellow survivors, people who love her and listen to her and validate her and make space for the heavy and sometimes terrifying moments of her life without devolving into terror themselves. They do not judge her or hold her worst moments against her. They are the ones who know why she cries. Later in the article, Jess goes on to say, In the early days, as the virus showed what it was capable of, many of my suicidal friends understood they would need one another more than ever. One of the newer friends of Jess, someone named Des, is a suicide survivor herself and has founded a support site for fellow strugglers. And she offered these words in the article. We've always needed other people. We just haven't had to make quite such a concerted effort in the past. People are finally seeing more intentionally how important it is to stay connected. The article concludes with this quote from Jenny, Jess's supportive sister. She says, if you want to have a life that makes you want to stay, that makes you want to live, you need other people. Everybody does. I've told you about my son, my youngest son, Sam, who lives in, in New York City. We talk a lot over the phone, especially through these recent months, usually FaceTiming each other. Seeing each other is more reassuring than just hearing each other's voices. He's had to shelter in place for quite a long time now, a good portion of it while actually being alone in his apartment. Early on, especially, I could, I could hear the isolation in his voice and I could see it on his face. Thankfully, things are getting better now, even though things are still fairly closed. A number of the times, though, in our calls, they've been around uh, early evening hour, 7 o'clock, when the neighbors in those high-rise buildings all over the vast city regularly lean out of their windows to beat on pots and pans and clap and whistle and look around to see and support each other. This is Sam getting ready to do that in his place. In, in regular times, many of those same people would often not even acknowledge each other's presence, perhaps even sometimes would have avoided connecting. But these times have not been regular times. 
And so people, even strangers, have very much needed to look to each other. Like Jess's sister said in that USA Today article, if you want to have a life that makes you want to stay to live, you need other people. On some evenings after all the clapping and the pan beating has subsided, the people of New York City have also sung some select songs that they've picked out. One of them especially seemed to fit right in with this one another passage that's our focus today. I'll give you a sample of this one, this one special evening. It's amazing the amount of energy that we've received and the amount of energy that we're giving has really lifted the spirits of New Yorkers and we hope people across the nation too. In a letter to the churches in Galatia, the Apostle Paul wrote these words, carry each other's burdens. It's a bit like that song we just heard a snippet of moments ago, but in a folksier way. Sometimes in our lives, we all have pain, we all have sorrow. Lean on me when you're not strong and I'll be your friend, I'll help you carry on. For it won't be long till I'll need somebody to lean on. If there's a load you have to bear that you can't carry, I'm right up the road. I'll share your load. If you just call me, call me, call me. The truth is, though, that, you know, some of us have to get pretty desperate before we'll ever ask for help. Lots of us live by words like, you got to tough it out on your own, or have a stiff upper lip, or that in this life it's about every man for himself. That is until something comes your way that's well beyond the pale, far too heavy for you to carry. When my oldest son was still in preschool at the time, we made a family trip to Mexico to visit my sister who worked there as a missionary with her family. Uh, my son was at that stage in life when he wanted to do everything by himself. You know, and if you've experienced it with kids yourself, what it's like. So this trip included him wanting to pack his own suitcase, which ended up having a few more things in it than were actually needed and added to the weight. And it was abs he was absolutely insistent about carrying that suitcase all by himself. I can still vividly remember him trying to drag it. And I say drag it because he was certainly not carrying it dragging it down that long airport corridor. Anytime I offered him my help, he would stubbornly refuse it. So I let him keep trying. 
for a while at least, until his poor little exhausted body finally had to give up. And he threw up his little arms and uttered this two-word plea. Daddy, help. And I did. Back early in the last century, there was a Christian writer named F.W. Borum who wrote a book which included his first chapter with this title, The Luggage of Life. And it began with these words, life is largely a matter of luggage. He says, so soon as a child can toddle, he displays an insatiable passion in carrying things. He's never as happy as when he is loaded. His face beams with delight when his back is burdened to the point of breaking. And if these appetites be not humored, he will exhaust his unconsecrated energies in pushing the chairs and tugging at a table and carrying the cat. The instinct is there, he says. You can no more deny him his load than you can deny him his lunch. The craving for both is born in him. And the truth is, this quest for luggage carrying only increases with time and exhausts us more and more and more in life. Stubborn little children, we often remain, or perhaps just more load-driven adults. Any of you in that kind of place? That is, until we find ourselves crushed, broken, reeling, totally overwhelmed. Your spouse says, I want a divorce. Your doctor sits you down and says you've got stage four cancer. A fireman calls to say your house just burned down. Your boss says you're fired. Your financial advisor says that investment you riskily made, I'm sorry, but you lost it all. You want to take another step, but your legs buckle. Your heart begins to pound. Your, your spirit panics, and you're not sure how you're going to be able to keep going. It's that kind of burden. We can sometimes manage not to sweat the small stuff, but when it comes to a boulder-sized burden, what do we do? Where do we go to throw up our hands and yell out, help? Well, of all the places in this world where we should not feel like we're alone, it should be within the community, the family that we call the church. We saw last week in the start of this series that we're calling church.community, how from its very beginning, the church was characterized by its generous spirit of encouragement. The poor were taken care of by those who were more blessed financially. Outsiders were welcome to become insiders. Those who had failed were given second chances. Humility replaced rivalry. How the church was an amazingly encouraging place. And here, Paul, in the text that we have for us today, in Galatians, is saying that the weak are to be helped out by the ready assistance of the strong. We are to be burden bearers, at least those of us who are strong enough at the time to give aid in the moment. Now, there are a lot of reasons that we can find ourselves uh, burdened, overwhelmed by life. Sometimes it's because of bad personal choices, sometimes our sins. Sometimes it's just a hard experience of life into which we find ourselves to have fallen. We live in a broken world and things can go bad for us and we just don't have the strength of the means to be able to get up again. 
Now, fortunately, we all don't find ourselves experiencing trouble in the very same time, at least not usually. That's a good thing because it allows those of us who are stronger in the moment to be able to help those that are weak. Though it can become especially overwhelming when we all sometimes find ourselves in a common sinking boat. That's a little bit what this coronavirus pandemic has felt like for us. But even then, there are ways in which we can share a heavy load. If I can't manage a 100-pound suitcase, if you're willing to help me, it can be a lighter 50 pounds for each of us. I don't think that when Paul is writing about bearing each other's burdens here that he's trying to be overly specific as to the exact nature of any burden. But the context of the key phrase that's our focus in the midst of these opening verses of Galatians does require us to allow for the fact that sin is often a common cause for our burdensome situations. I want to read with you the first five verses of the sixth chapter of Galatians to more fully set the stage and to help guide our, our reflection. Paul writes in verse 1, Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks they are something when they're not, they deceive themselves. Each one should test their own actions. Then they can take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to someone else, for each should carry their own load. Now, the sense of the text and the choice of the words seems to be describing a, a sin that perhaps is not of the highly intentional sort, but some kind of situation in which this imagined person has found themselves suddenly trapped. Maybe they slipped or they fell. But whatever the case, it's something out of which they cannot personally extricate themselves. The burden for them is overwhelming, impossible to carry it all alone. They need help. Perhaps you can imagine such a situation for yourself. It's not that you want to run away from your faith, but you've just gotten yourself into this burdensome place, perhaps by, by your own misdeed or sin, and you need help in getting out. You know, it's interesting, isn't it, when, when people get into trouble, how we react to their trouble. There are some who might even dare to say, well, it just serves them right. They're just getting what's coming to them. If they'd just not done this or that, or if they'd gone not here or there, this would never have happened to them. It's their own fault, and they're just going to have to live with it, the consequence of their own actions. And perhaps some might even say, if they'd only listen to me, it could have saved them a whole lot of grief. Little feeling of compassion, but a more than generous measure of judgment. Where's that kind of spirit come from, anyway? Jesus once told a story. He said there was a Pharisee. That's a highly regarded, rule-keeping, religious person in Jesus' day. A Pharisee who went into the temple to pray. And as he was about to begin, he noticed that there was also a far more lower-regarded, somewhat irreligious person getting ready to pray at the same time. Now, to be frank, the man of lower regard was a tax collector, a fellow Jew, but someone who was likely extorting extra tax dividends, not to benefit Rome, but to help further line his own personal pockets. And so the Pharisee, 
aware of this company, moved a little further off by himself to pray and said, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even this tax collector over here. I fast a week and I give a tenth of all that I get. While a tax collector stands at a socially respectable distance, you see they did that back then too to keep tax collector cooties from being able to contaminate healthy Pharisees. And the tax collector simply looked up to heaven and he beat his breast, which was uh, an expression of repentance in his day, and he prayed, God have mercy on me, a sinner. It's found in Luke 18. The tax collector threw up his hands and said, Daddy, help. He most certainly wouldn't have expected any help from the Pharisee, who was probably more than uncomfortable just having to be in the proximity of this tax collector. Luke prefaced this whole story that Jesus told with these opening words. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. And the parable, as told by Jesus, ended with these closing words. I tell you, Jesus said, that this man, the tax collector, rather than the other, the proud Pharisee, went home justified before God. He alone had his sin load lightened. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and all those who humble themselves will be exalted. The Pharisees were both the keepers and the enforcers of the religious rules of their day. And as if it wasn't hard enough to keep the rules that were already there, the Pharisees loved to create new ones. And they, they loved how hard it made for, made for all people to be able to practice what they preached, even though they quite often didn't keep their own made-up rules. Commenting on this practice, Jesus in another place said to the overburdened crowds, they, that is the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and they put them on other people's shoulders but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Everything they actually do is done for people to, to see, to make people notice them. It's in Matthew 23. Or the message captures the fuller context in this contemporary way. They talk a good line, these Pharisees, but they don't live it. They don't take it into their hearts and live it out in their behavior. It's all spit and polish veneer. Instead of you, instead of, uh, of giving you God's law as food and drink by which you can banquet on God, they package it into bundles of rules, loading you down like pack animals. They seem to take pleasure in watching you stagger under those loads and wouldn't think of lifting a finger to help you. There are those in life who are willing to help you when you're burdened, and there are those who seem to like to see you suffer. And if and when that is someone inside the family of faith, shame on them. That's why Paul, in this Galatian passage, warns this in the second part of verse 1. But watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. The sin trap that has snared the hypothetical brother that we're talking about and burned him down could also snare you, he says. And then Paul goes on to say in verses 3 and 4, If anyone thinks they are something when they're not, they deceive themselves. Each one should test their own actions. 
Then they can take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to someone else, for each one should carry their own load. The self-righteous soul is in the danger-tempting business. And if I only measure my life by what I judge to see is the measure of your life, I'm in deep trouble too. My load is my own responsibility. And while worrying about it or judging you, I'm neglecting the personal risk that I might be equally facing for my soul. I'm in real trouble. There are some souls who increase their stature, or think they are, by belittling, belittling the stature of others. If I can cut the feet out from under you, I'll appear taller by default. And it appears that within the churches in this region of Galatia, there were those who were more than proud of what they saw to be their spiritual, religious pedigree. In fact, some who were called Judaizers uh, had this strong insistence that all the Jewish rules and traditions had to be imposed on all the new Gentile believers in order for them to measure up. And it was causing all kinds of division in the church family into feuding factions, which was a lot of the reason why Paul wrote this book to the Galatians. It's not a matter of who is better or worse within the family. In fact, we each of us need to take care of our own duty towards God with regard to our personal practice of faith. Jesus one time said, do not judge or you will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you, Matthew 7. Or Eugene Peterson captures it this way. Don't pick on people. Jump on their failures. Criticize their faults. Unless, of course, you want the same treatment. That critical spirit has a way of boomeranging. Well, at this point, some of you some of you might be asking, I thought this message was going to be all about the upside of burden bearing. Well, we're getting to that right now, but unfortunately, we sometimes have to consider the bad before we can most fully appreciate and live out the good. Paul appeals not to the self-righteous critics in the church that like to pile more on all the time, folks who seem to love to see people struggle, but he appeals to those who he says, live by the Spirit. Some translate it the spiritual ones. That's in verse 1. These are to be the genuine burden bearers. It's a beautiful goal that Paul suggests as the end game for any kind of burden bearing. It's to help people be whole and healthy again. If someone is burdened, the goal is not to pile more weight on them, but to lighten their load. Paul uses a beautiful word to describe how the burden bearer operates. He or she is to act as a gentle restorer. Now, the word in the original language that Paul uses in verse 1 is what would be used to describe a doctor setting or restoring a broken bone, or describe how a fisherman might mend his torn nets. The purpose of either is to bring the bone or the net back into a state of its full usefulness. Have you ever had a seriously broken bone? And if you had... What kind of grade did you give the doctor who helped set the bone on the gentle scale? When you're hurting, you don't want somebody to unnecessarily jerk your brokenness into something worse and more painful in the way of brokenness. If you've gotten yourself into trouble, significant trouble, you don't need someone to make you feel even worse about it. You don't want to judge, but you long for a healer. And if possible, a gentle 
healer. Someone to lovingly and tenderly help you put your life back together again, to restore you to your good spiritual health and purpose. It's been said that the church is not meant to be a sanctuary for saints, but a hospital for sick people. It's a getting well, healing place. For a while, there was a popular saying that made its way under bracelets and jewelry. Jewelry. It was abbreviated briefly as WWJD, standing for what would Jesus do? So let me ask that question here. When people were hurting or burdened or falling, fallen, what did Jesus do? Well, Jesus once told a story about a shepherd who'd had shepherd who had a hundred sheep, but after doing his head count, noticed that one of them was evidently lost. And in telling the story, Jesus said, Doesn't the shepherd leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? But let's stop there a minute. If you had 99 good sheep and one bad sheep, well, the 99 may not have been perfect sheep, but they aren't at the moment wandering and lost sheep. So naturally, you leave the 99 in the middle of an open field and go looking for the bad lost sheep. Seriously? What kind of shepherd does that? A shepherd whose heart is stronger than his arithmetic. He loved his whole flock. And the story says, as Jesus tells us, that after the shepherd had found the sheep, he drug him by the scruff of his woolly neck all the way back to the 99, letting them have it for, letting him have it for misbehaving all the way. No, that's not the way it says it. It says the shepherd picks up that wayward sheep after he's found it. And how does the story put it? He joyfully places it on his shoulders and he goes home. And then he calls all of his friends together and says, Rejoice with me. I have found my lost sheep. It's in Luke 15. The goal of a good shepherd is for his flock always to be whole. When Peter, that disciple who seemed to have been one of the boldest and strongest from among all the twelve, swore that he would never betray Jesus, even if it cost him his life, that very night, he denied that he knew Christ not once but three times. How did Jesus ultimately respond to him? Well, after the resurrection, before the ascension, Jesus met with his disciples once along the shore of Galilee. One early morning, he cooked them breakfast of fresh fish they all shared it was restoration for tired bodies that they had surely had worn out by sleepless nights since the cross. And then Jesus took Peter off, just the two of them, for a quiet walk. There is much that Jesus could have said to Peter in a critical way. He had failed even after he'd promised to be faithful. When he had needed him most, he hadn't come through. He slept in the garden while Jesus agonized alone in prayer. And then he had denied him in the high courts, uh, the high priest's courtyard when Jesus was being tried by that kangaroo court. Surely that deserved a stern word from Jesus. But Jesus only said to him, Peter, do you love me? And all that Peter could say was, yes, Lord. Then feed my, my lambs, Jesus said. Take care of my, my sheep. I wonder if that wasn't one of the most bittersweet moments in Peter's whole life. 
a time when he desperately needed someone to help him somehow have this horrible burden lifted off of him, and then to have Jesus lovingly, tenderly, even non-judgmentally restore his soul and identify his calling. Paul, in the last part of verse 2 in our passage from Galatians, after the restoring part uh, and the burden-bearing part, says that in this way we fulfill the law of Christ. It seems a little peculiar to talk to someone who's dealing with a burden and say, well, this is how you keep this new law, another law of Christ. On the night before Jesus died, as he taught the disciples one last time, he said, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friend. You are my friends if you do what I command, John 15. I earlier mentioned that that, that book by F.W. Borum and the chapter on the luggage of life. Well, after talking about the human propensity that we have to pile on more and more luggage to increase our, our human burden, Borum writes this, the law of Christ ends all that. The luggage of life must be distributed. The sick must be nursed, the wounded must be tended, the frail must be cherished, he says. In a Christian land, under Christian laws, we bear each other's burdens. We carry each other's luggage. It is the law of Christ, the law of the cross, a sacrificial law. The new law that Paul is talking about is the law of love, love within the Christian family. Gilbert uh, Melander was once a speaker and a panel member at an educational workshop that was dealing with advanced directives. That is, those the merits of those things like living wills and durable power of attorney and things that help guide other medical decisions at the end of life. And he commented in an article, while, while most of those attending had some knowledge about these advanced directives already, it seemed like they wanted less information and, and just wanted to be able to talk. And one of the themes that came out in discussion was that many of them were afraid of the impact of making it necessary for their children to have to decide things for them in their last stage of life. And a phrase that was shared that had some common ownership again and again was, I just don't want to be a burden to them. Millender goes on to write about some of the burdens that he says he's endured for his children, like sweating through hot sun, teaching his kids how to catch and hit a ball or swing a tennis racket or shoot a free throw, uh, building with blocks and playing games that, quite frankly, he kind of detested with, with some of his children, sitting through years of piano recitals and band concerts and school programs, a lot of time again on busy nights and hot, humid evenings. He sat in steamy bathrooms in the middle of the night with a hot shower running, trying to help a child with croup breathe more easily run beside a bicycle, ready to catch a child who was somehow trying to learn to ride, spending hours finding perfectly decent, cheap clothing in stores, only to have those choices rejected as somewhat not exactly what his children had in mind, late nights, long nights, helping his kids finish up term papers, and his list went on and on. Then he said, 
Why should I not be a bit of a burden to those children in my dying? Well, he adds, of course, I've taken great joy in these children. I've not really resented much in the litany of the burdens that he's recited. But he said, still, there's a serious point to be considered. Is this not in large measure what it means to belong to a family? To burden each other, he says, and to find almost miraculously that others are willing and even happy to carry our burdens. Families would not have the significance they do for us, he says, if they did not, in fact, give us a claim upon each other. We are asked to share the burdens of life while learning to care for each other. Is it wrong to say that because we're family, a church, that we, we owe each other something? Like a willingness to accept that we are meant to be bearers of one another's burdens? That we're not judges or critics, that none of us is better or worse than the other, that we are family, that we are made to be burden bearers for each other. In fact, love tends to seek out burdens rather than avoid them, to embrace burdens rather than resent them. Why? Because we're inspired by the absolute selflessness of the one who said to us, do what I do, love people with all of your heart. And that means willingly allowing other people to be a burden to you. Sometimes in our lives, we all have pain. We all have sorrow. But how many of us willingly say, lean on me when you're not strong and I'll be your friend. I'll help you carry on if you call me. Or better yet, you don't even have to call me. I'll be looking out my window for you. I'll be knocking on your door. I'll be saying hello to you on the street or standing close enough to you in life to catch you if you fall or fail. John Abruzzo was working for the Port Authority on the 69th floor of the North Tower of the World Trade Center on September the 11th, 2001, when the first plane flew into the South Tower. John was a quadriplegic. He'd been that way since the age of 14, and he relied upon a heavy electric wheelchair for, for all of his mobility. When the first plane hit, the building swayed, his building swayed, and he began to maneuver his power chair out into the hallway where he found 10 of his co-workers waiting for him. All the rest in the offices were already making their way down out of the staircases, but they were there waiting. Someone found the evac chair into which Joe's six foot three, 250 pound body could be transferred. The, the evac chair was a bit of a cross between a hand truck and a sled. It was meant to, to be an easier way to get someone down a flight of chair, of stairs. <laughs> easier, but not easy. The, the friends rotated their responsibility on either end of the chair as they made their way down, maneuvering the stairs as best they could while also dealing with uh, with workers who were trying to descend around them and rescuers who were ascending the steps to give aid to others. It was an exhaustive, time-consuming consuming effort. They were warned of heavy smoke around the 40th uh, floor, so they moved across to a stairwell on the other side of the building, which ended up being life-saving because the staircase they'd been on would have only exited them onto a, to a mezzanine from which they would no, would have had no ready exit. At one point in their descent, the firefighters had encouraged them to let them find a way to get John down and for them to go on down without him. No, he's with us, they insisted, and they continued their descent. 
along the way at the 20th floor and again at the 10th. They felt other great shudders. They could not know that the first tower had fallen and that a second plane had also crashed into their own tower and that it would soon fall as well. Finally, on the ground floor, after about a 90-minute exhaustive descent, they found the exit doors were jammed, and they had to break a window open through which they finally made their way out of the building, and they carried John away over debris of glass and steel and stone. First tower had already collapsed, which they saw, and they'd only cleared their way just minutes before their own uh, tower collapsed as well. A photographer captured their picture that you see here. Though he didn't survive himself, his broken camera was found sometime later with the picture and the scenes of the North Tower in its collapse. One of the rescuers, a man named Michael, along with John, shared their experience on NPR's StoryCorps program back in 2007. And as their story closed, John said, I was incredibly lucky to have the 10 of those that stayed behind and brought me out of the building. To which his friend Michael reacted, But we've also said that maybe John was there to save us too. You don't know. We still all work together and, you know, he said, we're very close for that. We have that secret bond between us that you don't need to talk about. Hmm, I like that, that, that secret bond. I wonder if that's what Paul was trying to write about to the church at Galatia. It's really all about that bond that we have. It's not luck, but intentional design. We're family, and whenever one of us is in trouble, all of us are in trouble. When one of us hurts, all of us hurt. We feel and we bear each other's burdens because we're family. Whether it's a failure due to sin or a burden that's just due to one of the many painful, broken experiences of life, we whose lives have been blessed and motivated by the Holy Spirit offer ourselves as gentle restorers, willing burden bearers. In a world that can be often marked by, by harsh judgment and indifference and selfishness, I love the way Elizabeth Johnson puts it. She says, we are called to be an alternative community of God's grace, mercy, healing, and restoration in an unforgiving world. This is possible, she says, only by the power of the Spirit, only by God remaking us a new creation in Christ. If we want to model true Christian community within this world, we need to carry each other's burdens. This is part of that special bond that we share. And who knows, but that in doing this, in this one another relationship that we have with each other, as John Abruzzo's rescuer said, that we might actually be helping save each other. Let's pray. God, I thank you that in a broken world, we have each other. We have you. And that that is more important than anything, but that you have given us each other 
as family, as community. And I pray that as we think about ways that we can express how we care about each other and how we look out for each other, that we will always be looking for those that may be burdened under a heavy load and that we can help carry. God, for your word and for your encouragement and for the way that you carry us, we give you thanks and we offer this in the prayer of Christ, your son. Amen.